KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Mono. This is the Henry George Program, show all about land, policy, and politics. Today in the program, a very special guest. We have uh, David Colander, professor out of Middlebury College, an economist with an illustrious career and many publications. But today in this program, we're going to focus on what has become something of a forgotten chapter in uh, history. That is the development of technical approaches to remedy inflation in the 1970s and beyond, of which David Colander was a co-creator of MAP, or the Market Anti-Inflation Plan. So we'll get into the history and theory of that, as well as some uh, larger questions of efficiency versus distribution, when economic ideas are sensible versus crazy, as well as the philosophical underpinnings of economics. But uh, without further ado, yeah, let's, uh, let's get into it. So, uh, Professor Collender, thank you so much uh, for, for making it here. This is uh, a real honor to, uh, for you to be in the program. Thank you. It's a real honor to be called a real honor to talk to. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I guess, so this, this uh, I, I guess the, the overall thread of what is inspiring this is this kind of uh, work that you did, uh, you know, I think starting in the 70s about innovative anti-inflation plans. And I've been interested in this work since I think first encountering references in William Vickery writing about in the 90s, uh, kind of this history of a, of a cap and trade, you know, kind of market structure for inflation credits, which like, oh, that's interesting. And I already had encountered Abba Lerner's book, Inflation, uh, which is, you know, I, I think a very lucid and interesting book he wrote in the uh, mid 70s, kind of explaining the misconceptions about what was going on with stagflation, uh, all, all, all things were kind of pointing together for your work with Abel Lerner uh, with MAP, a market inflation plan. So I think without well, further ado- Bill Victory yeah, was also involved in that. So it was actually the three of us. Oh, interesting. Uh, as far as the authors on the, on the, on the book itself- uh, Yeah, it, the two of us, Abba and I, um, Bill had his own approach to things, but he was my dissertation advisor. And so I was working on it with him as we were working on the various parts. So I think just for context for people who just really aren't familiar with the details here, could you, I guess, give a minute-long elevator pitch? You know, what is MAP? Explain this for someone who doesn't know anything about it. Sure. MAP is a market anti-inflation plan. Essentially, it tries to view inflation as a technical problem, a technical mathematical problem. In order to have no inflation, the number of prices going up has to equal the number of prices going down adjusted for sort of all the adjustments and everything else. So that you have prices just at a balance. And sort of how do you keep it at that? Well, the way we currently keep it at that is we change the unemployment. More unemployment, sort of workers get get less, and therefore you've solved the problem. If you don't like that, you need something else in its place. What MAP does is instill property rights. So people start with a certain amount of value added where they have, which is it's easier to talk about wages. So wages are there. If firms are raising their wages, they have to pay another firm which will lower their wages adjusted appropriately um, so that the net wages of the two don't rise. So essentially you have a market in that. Anybody who wants to increase their wages sort of has to go and find the market of people who will lower their wages. And so therefore you have relative price adjustments without any inflation. So inflation is what occurs when you don't have some limit or anchor on the price level. And sort of what it does is add that price level. What you have without that is an anchor that can, it's a very poor anchor. So you set it there and you raise interest rates. Eventually that causes enough unemployment to sort of slow inflation. So, but that's not the most efficient way to do it. It's a much more efficient way to do it with the market. So MAP is a plan developed by Abba Lerner and myself to sort of solve the problem of inflation with the market itself. So it turns the market on the market and says here, it's the only thing strong enough to limit it. I mean, I so I guess, yeah, I guess you can talk about kind of like starting with your dissertation, but in general, it kind of explain like the motivation, what, what you were seeing at the time and how this... Uh, kind of led you to this, this I guess, this path of, of developing this? Essentially, I was writing a standard dissertation, which means at that time it was just turning into three essays. Yeah. Earlier, you used to have to write a whole dissertation. 
And then sort of in the 70s, it switched to where you wrote three essays. And now I think people write one and a half essays and sort of call it three. But sort of each of these developed. And I had written on optimal taxation, which in the late early 70s, late 60s was hot stuff. And sort of people were doing it. But it was technical and not especially interesting in my point of view. But, you know, it was getting my dissertation done. I had finished two essays and was working on the third. And so, you know, sort of inflation, this was about 73, 74. Inflation was a big topic then, you know, among lots of people. And we were discussing it. And so I came up with this idea that here, you know, why don't we put sort of a market on inflation rights? So create property rights and prices so that anybody who wants to raise their price has to pay somebody else to lower their price by an offsetting amount. Now, the reason for that, I mean, it was very simple if you sort of follow a Coastian approach. But at the time, Coast was just in, in getting involved in some of that. So people didn't think in that way. But the ga- advantage of it was it forced you to consider inflation as both a technical and a general equilibrium phenomenon. So pretty much whenever people talked about inflation, it was sort of a real messy discussion because they talked about cost push inflation. And everyone sort of said, well, what you mean is just a change in relative price. So it was one price, one time, and that wasn't there. So, And so that's what sort of was pushed for cost push inflation. Abbott was different. He sort of said inflation and tried to get around it. But sort of within the general discussion, that was the way. If you were talking about inflation, it was going to be sort of cost push, which happened before full employment. And once you got to full employment, it was straight demand. You only thought of demand and, and operating there. And I didn't picture that at all. You know, sort of number one, the Valrasian system was not very good at sort of talking about inflation because essentially it had no money. It yeah. had no rating. It had nothing other than sort of a solution to a general equilibrium problem. And so... Here, I thought this is an interesting way of picturing inflation and forcing you to think of it for what it is, not for, you know, sort of this cost push demand pull fight, which was a useless fight because it had to be both involved in it. Yeah, and I feel like the kind of way this is developed, you see the introduction of, of I guess, deficits, which is not only, I mean, I think if you, if you, you know, uh, smooth everything out to a Walt Racian, you know, everyone goes to the bourse and everyone just basically, it's a perfect auction and everything happens. In the world, world we live in, there is institutions in which there is price setters and price takers, and there's different basic, you know, power uh, differentials of who can set, who can take. And I think, you know, seeing how this developed in this in the 70s, I, I worry in, in retrospect, it's very easy to say, oh, the issue is, you know, too much money. There's a lot of deficit phobia. And there's a very solid trend line of people just looking back at Volcker saying only Volcker realized, you know, the kind of fundamentals that you have to just show the ability to stare down, you know, inflation in the eye and, 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 and raise rates. But I mean, this just kind of sidesteps the entire like, what is the goal of, of, of this? Because the, the cost that was taken with the Volcker shock is we can take substantially higher unemployment to until we we give up and and basically uh, one of the institutions in that case would be you know I guess you know you know labor unions would stop their side of this wage price spiral in this case and it seems like that sort of discourse is very very common among people who like have a surface level understanding uh, in your mind, the story of, I guess, stagflation in the 70s, what is the right way to explain what was going on and what we could have done about it? You know, sort of, I see inflation as always a combination of cost push and demand pull processes. So that what you could have done is a political question yeah. of what you can do to sort of change the speeds of adjustment so that prices, some prices go up more slowly and other prices go down faster. And so it's speeds of adjustment of prices, not whether they're high or low that you're really looking at. And so if you're talking about equilibrium in sort of this dynamic system, dynamic Valrasian system, sort of the pressure is pushing the price level up 
whatever that price level is, has to be equal to the pressures pushing it down. And so therefore, once they're equal, then you will stop inflation. So you think of it within that terms. The first thing that does is stop you thinking about money, stop you thinking about wages separately from that. And we talk in terms of value-added units. So we're not saying whether it's wages. That's an institutional question. You know, sort of it really was here, all the pressures pushing it up. Next, it sort of forces you to take a look at what am I using as the index of inflation? Because there's thousands of possible indexes of inflation that you might use. And indeed, if you think of the way it's often used, it includes asset inflation. But when we talk about inflation, we're not trying to stop asset inflation. So when we said there wasn't enough inflation out there, there was enormous amounts of asset inflation. And so that's where it was going. And if you look at sort of a forward-looking phenomenon where people are spending in the future, sort of that can be the shadow prices for all those contingent goods in the future. All those are part of the inflation process. So imagine there's 500 inflation games being played, of which you're talking about one, sort yeah. of a, a particular sub-inflation index that emphasizes certain things. And sort of saying here, money's going to affect it. Money's going to affect these 500 this one is only minor, and it might be important at some times, but others not. And so here, it's trying to get people to think that when you're talking about inflation, it is not a scientific phenomenon. It's a political phenomenon of the relative prices that you choose to look at at the particular time. And so it gets you thinking about the role of money in the system differently than what it is. But again, let's, you know, in terms of your questions, which is much more practical and pragmatic. <laughs> sure. Um, and I, you know, sort of my answer to that is I don't know, you know, sort of because these institutions are so damn complicated. And so I think you should be dealing with institutions and saying that's what's there. But you can't, unless you know them, know how they work and sort of what they're going for it to be able to come up with an actual solution to it is impossible. So that's why I emphasize the theoretical solution part of it. Sort of here, it's useful to think. And this was a time when they were, you know, sort of, it was in the beginning of the 70s that they started pushing the TIPS, tax um, anti-inflation programs, where they'd sort of tax firms that raise their wages too much. And sort of Henry Wallach was there, and there were other people, and they were pushing that. But the way that was understood was much more in a partial equilibrium system. Hmm. So what I wanted to do was change that to get that to be a general equilibrium discussion so that you were thinking here of these speeds of adjustment and sort of to think there's a single equilibrium unemployment rate is crazy. Because if you have lots of pressures pushing up on prices and very few down, you've got to get some more pressures pushing down or you're going to get accelerating inflation. The way to get that is sort of here, put a tax on it yeah. or, you know, sort of let people sell. So anybody who wants to raise their price has to pay somebody else. The price immediately goes to the equilibrium level that stops all inflation. So if there's no pressure to raise prices, then it can, it can be zero. If there are is pressure to raise prices, it stops it. But in stopping it, it allows you to run a lower unemployment rate. So in other words, the more higher rate price you're willing to accept on raising price, the lower the unemployment rate can be. And you can have that unemployment rate, whatever is feasible within that system. So to say there was, I was arguing there was not a single narrow in the economy. There's a large number of them, and they're dependent on the institutional structure that you choose. And so it's only by looking and sort of understanding that institutional structure, they can understand what happens. As soon as you see it that way, what happens in the 70s becomes much better understood. Because now what you have is globalization was occurring. Globalization changed the underlying in structure of the wage setting process hmm. and the price setting process. Because competition from China was enormous. Anytime workers tried to raise their wages, they, firms would say, we'll move to China or somewhere else. And globalization sort of put a fix on how prices could go. And therefore, you no longer had the inflation problem. But that meant you still had all the other problems. But as opposed to saying, we still have it, and we've got to deal with these other problems. They said, that means we can do whatever we want. 
and sort of they went and expanded, you know, far more than I think, you know, so was was warranted given the institutional structure. If you want to expand, and I believe you should, to help more people, you've got to change the underlying institutional structure in a way that, you know, they most politicians don't want to discuss. Yeah, and I think when you talk about, I guess, you know, what is, a, you know, uh, the feasible employment situation, and this kind of speaks back to kind of an antecedent, uh, which was, you know, John Kenneth Galbraith uh, writing during World War II. In, in that case, there was, you know, extremely tight labor markets. People are being pushed into labor market who never were involved before. And at that time, you know, he used, you know, kind of the practice of, you know, a rationing to write a general theory of price controls. Yeah. And oh, I, I thought his theory of price controls was brilliant. Was yeah, I, I've, not, I've not read the book. I, I need to get a copy of it, uh, but you certainly build it up. He said he said it was his best book, and six people had read it. <laughs> yeah, so, but like in general, I, I guess, you know, what when we're having a discussion about what should be done, the idea of, you know, price controls and rationing is, you know, seen upon as unserious by many, certainly in the economics field. It's it, There's kind of an allergy to it, it appears. For that, I tried to change because the idea of thinking of this as sort of a property right that you could sell to somebody else and sort of stop the inflation said here, there's no difference between that and control except sort of the institutional structure of how we're sort of getting that to take place. They want it to be a political discussion. Here, one group sort of agrees to adjust with the other. I take the politics out of it and create it in sort of property rights. The politics is embedded in the property rights. But of course, it's the assignment of those property rights that has all the same problems as the debate about, you know, who's going to raise what. So I said, you know, sort of, it isn't whether you can control the price level. You can control the price level. It's whether you want to accept all the costs in practical terms of what me that doing that will mean. And those are institutional questions, which you know, sort of economists avoid. Yeah, I mean the fact the fact it's it's you know if you talk about the structures of kind of you know collective rights to enjoy profits, collective property rights, you know how this is administered. It's really dealing with you know who owns what, what they can do. This is it's, it's very general questions about kind of you know the public role in administering an economy. But I guess yeah, well, when it's something is you know a tax, it, it feels like a bloodless system. Um, but I remember you saying that uh, at one point you were talking to someone in, in in you know in the context of the Carter administration, and they said this would be like such a fundamental change. This would be as as big as uh, you know the the Federal Reserve. Uh, right, that was Alfred Kahn. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's. I mean, it's it's interesting to think about because it, it in a lot of ways it's like oh, it's a tax and you know, you know, cap and trade market for inflation credit sounds bloodless, but when you think about you know what this institution means, it has a lot of very big implications. And how you interpret property rights, how you sort of allow them to continue, and sort of the actual measurement of prices. Now, we did it on value-added per unit inputs to stay away from any quality goods or anything like that and sort of wanted to blend together sort of wages and profits into value-added units so that sort of that fight was taken off the table because what had always happened up until that time became a fight between those who wanted wage controls and sort of here allowed prices sort of fluctuate. And we said, it doesn't matter whether the higher prices go to wages or to profits. Somebody's getting it and the consumer isn't getting it. So we wanted to compare it to the consumer. So that, I think, was a change which never really got accepted by the profession, um, mainly because here it sort of changed the, poli the, the policy political discussion that took place at the time. I mean, do you think in, in practice, you know, I, I think at least in the last couple of years, uh, we've seen uh, kind of a tightening of labor markets, which seem to indicate some sort of tipping up of a higher labor share. And insofar as, I mean, I guess this was, you know, processed through public, you know, discourse around inflation and so on, but it was it was seen as essentially, you know, unacceptable. There was you know, public discourse about a labor shortage, and it was it was clamped down. 
which I mean, this has been the story of since the Volcker shock. The, the, the productivity gains have essentially not gone to labor share. If there was this this system, I, I guess you're saying the the fight for you know labor share would go out of the realm of kind of administering quote unquote inflation and would be essentially a an actual. Uh, you know, bargaining. What what do you see those dynamics is looking like if something like this were in place? Well, again, I think you know we've gotten down now to where you know sort of we have excess demand for labor in terms of the way you normally express it. I don't believe you know excess demand because that's a static concept. Yeah. Well, what it means is there's upward pressure on low level wages, and that seems reasonable. You know, sort of, and indeed, depending on how we handle immigration and how we handle sort of other people coming in and sort of tariffs and that, you could sort of get low-level wages up to minimum of $30 an hour um, and operate there. But it requires all kinds of decisions about how you want international markets to operate. People don't discuss it. They say, well, allowing people in sort of to work, Americans don't want the job, so it's not taking away. Well, they don't want the job at the pay that it's giving. But if the pay was high enough, they take the job. Yeah. But we are not part, you know, sort of, of that. So that doesn't go on there. So there's a whole bunch of discussion, political discussion, that people do not want to sort of undertake, or that cannot be undertook because if you did, you'd say we don't want it. Whereupon sort of you're stuck with sort of where you are, and that's where I think we are at the moment. I've seen sort of the wages going up on the low end as being a positive of what's going on. And the real problem was prices should have been going down a lot more than what they are. So in other words, if you think of it in terms of map situation, where inflation is being caused is where prices are going up or, you know, more than what they would, you know, sort of otherwise be the case and sort of where you can slow them. So what we did with property rights to all types of sort of intellectual property is to give it to people. And sort of give it to people where they could have all kinds of additional, you know, sort of wealth and income coming in. So what that meant is that other people had to get much less because if they get more, the other people have to get less. So what we wanted to do was here sort of include that in where here where they got the property rights, they'd have to pay other people. So the property rights gains would have been distributed much differently than they currently are in the system. Yeah, it's interesting to have like any sort of opening where prices have a distinct pressure to go down in sectors, because I feel like it, it like the, the the general stickiness. It's hard to think outside of I guess maybe different tiers of like you know kind of uh, the bleeding edge of electronics. You know, things just generally don't get cheaper, and it's it's. But that's a political decision that they don't get cheaper. They should yeah. have. Yeah. And so the cause of inflation, in my view, was in intellectual property rights, the biggest cause of inflation, because they did not go down anywhere near as much as they should have gone down to sort of allocate it out differently. Yeah. So I so I'm insofar as, you know, your know, map was, you know, proposed this 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 book was published in uh, the late 1970s. Yeah, 1980 is the publication date. Uh but it was you know, being proposed and chopped around. In, in fact, as as we all know, it was not put into place. But there was uh, a number of I, I think you were you were continuing to fil- facilitate discussions around it for many years past that. Uh, there's a couple uh, re- releases of, of of books, including one called uh, "Incentive Based Incomes Policies: Advances in Tip and Map," uh, which you edited and and released in 1986. And I, I guess the question is, like at that time, it, it seemed that the I guess the political appetite for it was was not really there. Was, was part of this kind of like, do, do you feel at the time there was still a way to not, I, I guess, say that that Volcker won? Uh, do you do you think, or was this kind of like was this trying to create a blueprint for what could be happen during the next inflation crisis, which I believe you say you anticipated would happen at some point? Yeah. Uh, again. Sort of, ABBA had a much greater hope that it would sure. be practical um, within his lifetime. And when he, you know, sort of had a stroke and stopped working, then I spent less time sort of thinking about the practical ones because I never regarded the politics as very possible for him. Sure. You know? And so my interest was theoretically 
And I hope to change the way people thought about sort of micro foundations and the operations. That was sort of kept me going, working on it for another eight or 10 years. Um, and then when that didn't catch on, as people moved away from that, I, you know, just stopped pushing so much on it. So that's why I ended the push on it, mainly because I saw it as really important theoretical insights into micro foundations, but that weren't part of the discussion that was taking place. The po politics of it is such, I don't think I'd say Volcker won or not. I mean, uh, what I understand with Volcker was that here there was a fight between those who wanted to say, you should control the money supply or you should control interest rates. And sort of the Fed had always said, we control interest rates, um, not the money supply. Friedman said, you control the money supply. Volcker sort of said, well, if Friedman's going to make that argument, let's agree with him that we control, you know, sort of the money supply. We'll control the money supply then and let inflation go to where it will. Um, and so, and, and let the interest rates go to where they will. And that was the only way they could raise the interest rates to 18 or 20%, yeah. to sort of create a shock and sort of make it. But it was a short-term shock that you had to sort of break out of at the moment. I think the, this time is different in the sense of here, we, we haven't gotten into sort of the place where we really are at 10% inflation going there. I think the solution to their problem is 4% that essentially what they'll do is stop saying, we're shooting for 2% inflation targets, we'll shift it up to 4%. And at 4 to 5%, because you'll err a little on the side, you'll get it. That'll last for another five or six years, and then you'll get some higher ones, and then you might need a shock to sort of bring, you know, sort of expectations down. But expectations gets built underneath all of it, and sort of expectations in the 70s had people scared of inflation. Here, I think, you know, sort of they can pull people away from being as scared of inflation as they have been. Um, so that's my view on the, how the politics will play out. That's interesting. I mean, I, I feel as far as, I mean, people have like said in the last, you know, I guess, you know, a couple political cycles, you know, inflation has been on, you know, people's minds. It, you know, I, I think a lot of people would say inflation remains kind of irrationally despised. You know, even if, like, if you see nominal price rises, you know, I guess the, the, the things economists will point to are things like menu costs and things that actually are disruptions to running businesses. I mean, but it seems like the general pop, you know, public, even if their wages are keeping pace, you know, which, you know, that could or could not be the case, people just seem not to not to like it, uh, which is, I suppose, like one great potential of MAP is instead of the standard 2% guidelines or kind of goals, you really could drive it to, you know, a strict zero, in, in theory, at least, right? If you want to, and it depends on what price index you're talking about. Yes. Now, this goes back to this discussion right at the beginning. There's hundreds of price indexes out there yes. that you could control. And so the reason I moved away technically from MAP in some degrees is there were just too many of them. Which one should you be controlling? And sort of where asset prices fit in, the driving force with much of the politics and much of the distributional fight has to do with forward markets operating and sort of what's happening with asset prices. That's really the driving force. When we had considered MAP issues, we hadn't considered asset prices at all. Sure. Sort of putting in there. And they were the ones that were doing 80, 90% of sort of the push. And the interesting thing was here, they were allowing much more demand to be created than, you know, sort of could possibly be considered. And the way it did that, it created demand for new type things that you never knew you wanted or anything else, or sort of let people believe that they could have more than what they what they can have. If everyone tried to spend the money now that they think they have in asset prices, you yeah. know, there would just be a total deflation. So it allows that to take place because it never takes place. Yeah, And that's irrationality in the system that works to the advantage of the system. So you can get all kinds of rich people who, if they actually sort of wanted to use their wealth, wouldn't be able to as a group. 
Yeah, I mean, you talk about stickiness. I mean, as far as it goes, like housing prices right now, people believe they have this certain equity, but uh, certainly at the moment, people cannot liquidate their real estate assets at the prices they believe they're entitled to. And it seems that people are in any short term unlikely to really, uh, I guess, settle for it for a lower for a lower bid. There's a certain bit of like generational thing, too. If, you know, kind of entire generation believes this is our nest egg for the future. uh, But would they actually be able to liquidate it all at once and and kind of cash out? The answer is no. Yeah. But here the answer is also yes, because the politics of the situation say we better let them liquidate or yeah. enough of them liquidate or we'll be liquidated exactly and, yeah and so you know the politics will force a reaction of the government which sort of allows sort of the beliefs to continue to the degree they have to continue for the system to continue operating I suppose, like, I guess the, I mean, that is, I guess, the practical question, which is you can't, in this case, you know, build up kind of essentially a promise, which is the American dream is predicated upon, you know, building up your home equity and cashing out at the right times that you kind of feel you're uh, obligated to. Is there, I I guess is a question, is there a, could you expand the field of the technical, uh, the technical interventions to inflation uh, to, to kind of bring in more asset inflation, including, including housing? Um, Again, there's discussions of that in Goodwin and some others. It's pretty hard because asset prices are so poorly measured and yeah. fluctuate so much that I don't know what you could do. But I really think it's there. Create cryptocurrencies and sort of let everyone buy cryptocurrencies and sort of hold all kinds of it and then see that only rich people hold cryptocurrencies and they lose most of it. Then you sort of resolve the problem to some degree. Yeah, I mean that's the thing with assets. It's it's really nice if you have assets that no one cares about. I mean, cryptocurrencies are the the great you know exa- exhaust pipe of just nonsense. Uh, yeah, well, I mean they're just like gold. Yeah, uh, you know, sort of. Then you have that, and you have you know museum quality tusks and you know sort of skeletons for things and old paintings and various things. You could create all kinds of stuff that people want. And so here you have all the things that people want, as long as they aren't the ones that are affecting, here's what society needs to produce to sort of provide it. Um, You know, everyone's happy. Yeah. I mean, I suppose, I mean, this is like, as far as like the assets go, the only one that really feels like it really matters to most people who you're forced to in one way or another is is real estate, because, you know, everyone needs a place to live. Uh, and I suppose as far as a technical intervention, I mean, I, I think uh, you know, something that, that comes up not infrequently is the idea of like uh, a technical intervention to higher real estate prices would be basically higher taxes, especially in kind of a, you know, on the land itself. And, you know, that is, as, as you said earlier, I mean, this is essentially a political fight over what does, <laughs> does everyone own? Because if you tax their real estate holdings... Really, you could say, "Oh, that's just a tax," but in a lot of, this is actually shaping, you know, who owns what in this entire. Yeah, f- yeah. yeah. No, I see you're a Georgian. Yeah, exactly. I'm just. Uh, I mean, it feels like that's in my mind. That's. I mean, that's that is the the name of the program here. But uh, yeah, I mean, as far as it goes, I mean, that is in some sense a technical solution to real estate, you know, inflation. But yeah, good good luck with it. I mean, I guess one more question, too, about, you know, kind of technical answers. I mean, do you consider, like, sectoral bargaining, uh, it's, it's in the field, it's like all the other alternatives to, I guess, map in the field of kind of... Uh, I don't know enough about sectoral bargaining to say anything about it one way or the other. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. I, do you feel that there is, uh, you said in the 1980s, micro foundations of inflation were something which was, you know, you were interested in pursuing, but it didn't really go as far as you'd hope it would. I, I feel in the last, I'm seeing much more energy from like post-Keynesians in the last, you know, couple years than I feel you've seen in generations. Is anyone kind of tapping into these same questions you're seeing in, in as far as? Well, not in the way I tapped into them. So the answer is I pulled away, you know, sort of, I think from a lot of the sort of work there because it was going in different directions. I'm sort of this in-between person wanting to write within sort of the standard sort of structure 
but sort of wanting to look at it differently. Whereas I think a lot of the heterodox economists want to attack the existing structure a bit more than I'm interested in doing. <laughs> just, just too much. Uh, the actual, they want to see the the, the scrum and the fight as opposed right. to as opposed, as to, opposed to, the, to sort of saying here, this is an interesting, useful way to look at something, and there's lots of ways to look at it. And what we have to do is sort of say, here is the most efficient way of looking at this particular problem understanding what the other people are. And that's why I shifted really to a lot of work in methodology and sort of discussions about that, because that was more where I felt the fight was at, as opposed to sort of where one came out in the particular areas, you know, sort of that we're talking about policy. That's, I mean, do, do you feel like at the time, insofar as you, you definitely speak to different temperaments between you and Abba Lerner when you're working on this project, you know, where he has, you know, was definitely, uh, I, I feel, you know, you say more hopeful as far as, you know, prophesizing like a kind of, you know, future here. Uh, I do feel like the, there's like a, a combination of those kind of energies that, you know, do, do you really kind of need both, you know, working together in some sense to achieve something here? Um, depends on how it's put together as opposed to, you know, whether you need what you achieve. You can have good, great discussions and not be able to write together or something. So, no, I think it was just he was always impractical. So when he sort of went up to visit Keynes, he told him, here, I can solve all your problems for you. <laughs> for ABBA, sort of political problems were easily solved, you know, sort of if he could solve it analytically. So yeah. he was really, you know, sort of a brilliant ana analyst and could analyze things mathematically far beyond what other people could see. Um, and so that was really his strength. Um, and he, he did that, but he didn't have practical sense. So he, you know, sort of would suggest here the deficit you can run and, you know, run as large a deficit as you want. It doesn't matter. There's no limit on the deficit. Keynes said this, objected to him. He was at a seminar at the Fed and told Abba that he was way off and didn't understand it. Later on, Keynes was going back to England on the whatever, the Queen Mary or whatever, and sort of wrote Abba that he was wrong. You know, he was technically right about it, the deficit, but heaven forbid if we tell anybody that because it'll eliminate our chances of ever getting any of our policies in. And so Keynes adjusted to sort of fit Here's what's politically possible, whereas ABBA, politically possible, wasn't of interest to him, especially. Yeah, I think it was like some line about you need the the right amount of kind of the proper amount of humbug to sound to sound serious yeah. or something. <laughs> but as opposed to completely blue sky thinking, no, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's it's you know it, uh, your uh, advisor, uh, you know William Vickery, you know he he definitely treated like when he was you know you know, awarded the Nobel Prize, he was very excited to say, like, this would give him the legitimacy to, I guess, move more into the kind of political advocacy space. And it's, you know, interesting that he, he was very much, he was going to talk about Matt at the Nobel Prize inauguration. Yeah, that was his attempt. Actually, Abba was going to talk about it, too. So the, Abba was up for the Nobel Prize, you know, sort of a number of times before. And a lot of people said the reason um, he didn't get it was because they didn't want him talking about MAP. So, you know, sort of, because they thought it was a pretty crazy scheme and his he presented, people say economists have gone crazy. Vickery <laughs> was going to talk about it too, um, but there was sort of political pressure sort of because of his other work to allow him in. And they said, he won't talk about it too much. I don't think you have to worry. So I prevented a whole bunch of people of sort of getting either getting the Nobel Prize or actually talking about it. Well, what, what do you think makes them draw the line between what's what's too crazy and what's what's serious? I think it's sort of what other people say when you see people's face react to things. Yeah, um, that's yeah, and so there's a gut reaction that people have. Vickery was was amazing because he was extremely impractical and extremely practical at the same time. So he's the one who sort of figured out all the, you know, sort of pricing schemes for airlines and everything else and for roads and that did it. Except he made them practical. He went down to Hong Kong and sort of developed putting numbers on your dashboard, which allowed you to go on certain days and sort of developed it. 
and he was figuring all this out. And I remember the first time I talked to him, he was telling me how he was figuring out these um, toll booths, so which would sort of measure as the car went by and charge it, figuring out what the math was to sort of allow that to happen. So he was a pure engineer. He jumped from one side to the other. Abbas stayed totally on one side. So that was really the difference between the two of them. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to see. Like, I guess when you talk about macroeconomics, you can't really go to the workshop. But you know, you know, Vickery could say, you know, figured out we can get the you know kind of a working prototype for under twenty bucks that everyone can put in their car, and then you you solve congestion pricing. I proved yeah. it. Look at it. Yeah, I mean, and he did it as soon as he figured it out. He say, "How do I practically implement it?" And sort of that became very much part of it. And he'd do what he could to sort of implement it. So I think you know, if you look back on these developments, he was way, way ahead of the time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sort of actually sort of led to it because on both the theoretical front and on the practical front. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting that Vickery, I guess, you know, did throughout his career under a microscope, drilling, drilling down into all these problems. But I guess it was like his last decades of his life, he really, I guess, shifted focus to macroeconomics, or at least kind of his advocacy, wrote a a lot of interesting papers against that, that. He, decided, he decided it was far more the far more important reason um you know sort of so many people are hurt by macroeconomics compared to micro that he said he wanted to focus on and actually sort of i had been writing i started out telling about my dissertation i've been writing three essays on optimal taxation and was just about finished and then i wrote this little paper called the free market solution to inflation where i outlined sort of this he wrote me back and sent a copy to my chairman saying, this is the most brilliant paper I've seen in the last 20 years, um, you know, so, which may be pretty good. Sort yeah. of, you know, operating. So I went to him and said, if I change my dissertation and develop it, can I finish in a year? And he said, yes. So then I went to Ned Phelps, who was my other dissertation advisor, and said, Vickery said I can finish in a year if I change. Can I change? Um, can I? He said, yes. So both of them had pretty much signed off before I started. And it was a good thing, too, because the dissertation was awful. <laughs> well, so when you talk about optimal taxation, like what, what, what were the details? Was it like, was it general or? What was opt optimal income taxation? So oh, income taxation, yeah. What, what you'd want is a regressive tax is optimal. Oh, no. <laughs> no, if you're interested in efficiency, regressive taxes are much more efficient than that. You don't talk about tax income taxes as efficiency but why not why do we talk about regular taxes in terms of efficiency and the income taxes in terms of sort of income distribution i argue they should be all the same and the optimal tax is a hundred percent tax at the lowest income going down to zero at the highest income um so that was one of my results um <laughs> so it's in, kind of a reducto ad absurdum of of the idea of efficiency well, yeah, well, that's what it was. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, it says here, if you're talking about efficiency, you're going to have to sort of get high income tax rates at some point early on. And that's the problem with basic income. If you're going to sort of provide basic income at a high level to people, somehow you've got to sort of have really high taxes and people are going to have to, because you've got to get down to where you're bringing in positive taxes. Hmm. And the faster you get down, the more efficient it is because the more people you get, per marginal effect. And that's what you're talking about with efficiency, how much marginal effect you get. And if you do it at the beginning, it works as a lump sum tax on all higher income people. Whereas if you do it at the end, you don't get that lump sum tax. So the advantage of you know regressive taxes is they provide lump sum taxes on the rich. Hmm. And so if you think of it that way, you come and sort of have a different way of talking about here, where do we want the high um, tax rates to be? And you have it initially, but they pay 90% of your first 100000 After you start earning it, then you get a lot more. So you work hard and sort of you get a lot more and you get the other coming in. And so some people who have very low productivity and low efficiency choose not to work. You provide income to them. And so that's a way of sort of operating. So it's a way of sort of looking differently at things. Another one was saying all this stuff on efficiency is pretty much crap because here, as soon as we go and measure sort of the taxes and the cost of taxation, 
is sort of all types of sort of administrative costs, various other costs. These other costs totally overwhelm the efficiency costs. And why are we talking about efficiency where it's 2% when sort of these are all other costs are 10 to 12% for taxes that they have to be integrated in? And the third was sort of a Rawlsian tax. If you believed in Rawls, you know, what, how would you set the taxes um, in the tax system in a system that's operating? So that's what I was doing. But then I dumped it and sort of did the free market solution where I developed MAP as my dissertation. Well, as far as the Rawls goes, I mean, I would that have to do something with basically taxing the, the luck of what you end up with after you exit the veil of the ignorance? Um, no, I, I did it, you know, sort of Rawls sort of was minimizing the max, minimax sort of there. Yeah. And what it was was saying here, it's the same idea of the negative or the need for the tax, you know, so to initially to be very regressive, you'd still want it very regressive in the Rawlsian one, because here it's regressive, but it's designed to bring in income in another way. So here you can't sort of combine bringing in income with the taxes. That's a poor way to do it. It's much better to sort of shift it around and operate differently. In, in in general, I mean, what are your thoughts of just in like, I think before we started recording, you were talking about kind of how things are can be a distributive problem, but not really set as such. But like, I mean, economists are want to talk about efficiency, but are, you know, very, you know, seemingly reluctant to talk about, you know, distributive effects, I guess, in explicit ways. Because we don't have the tools, we haven't been taught how to talk about those. I mean, there's a whole different approach to sort of discussing things, a philosophical approach, where truth is found by sort of arguing, and sort of arguing and coming to sort of a reasoned agreement with other people. Now, that sort of way is the way you deal with non-scientific problems that can't be solved through empirical methods. Economists aren't trained to do that, but in order to talk about policy, you need people trained to do that. So economists aren't trained to talk about policy. Well, what could so they be done to be like? Well, if you like, do you, th do you think they should be about, just trained more? Yeah, train more in in philosophy. Yeah, or just you know, basic philosophy. It's not. Yeah. But here, everyone should sort of know. Here's Rawls, Rawls's veil of ignorance. You should know Smith's impartial spectator, and you should also know that within sort of this debate, it's a debate to sort of not prove that you're right, but it's a debate, debate to sort of understand what the other person is saying and sort of expand your sort of understanding. That that's the way in which you gain sort of sufficient insight to develop sort of ways of understanding that can be combined with the scientific and efficiency discussions to put together. And here's a novel way that might work. So what I believe economists should be doing is thinking of novel ways sort of integrate the needs that you can discover in philosophical discussions with the scientific realities of how the limitations are. So that's why it wasn't problem, didn't find it a problem at all that the optimal income tax was, you know, so highly regressive, because it, it's just a way of, you know, talking about things. Um, if it is, then where do I do it? I don't have, you know, if highly regressive, um, is there some other way to do it? If there yeah. isn't there. So you're achieving ends. And that I don't think economists do at all. It's interesting to say, like, when, when kind of goals are introduced, I mean, to look at, I guess, you know, William Vickery and his, you know, macroeconomic work, I was just very kind of like interested that he went out of his way to kind of redefine or kind of explicitly define tight labor markets, you know, and his chalk full inflation. He defined it really kind of in a very, I guess, intuitive way, which is just basically anybody can go out and get a job within 48 hours that pays a living wage, which kind of fuses not only what does it practically look like for, I guess, filling job, but also cost of living? Because it's not just a job, it's a job that will actually sustain you. Problem is, again, sort of the international setting yeah. within that, which makes it hard. But yeah, I, I agree. If you look at sort of the Keynesian sort of development, the work early on, the initial work, you know, done for the government and everything, full employment was defined as where the number of 
you know, sort of unemployed significantly are below the number of jobs. So vacancies exceed jobs by two or three times. And so that was to create a system within which sort of it would be fair for people. The problem is, as soon as you create a system that's fair for people within that sense, all kinds of people from outside want to be in the system too. Hmm. And if those numbers are so big that they overwhelm the others, it breaks it down. Um, and that's what it does. Um, yeah. Uh, internationally, I mean, even within like domestically, if you have a city that has hot labor markets, you're going to see more immigration to that city. And the kind of you know political fights over who is able to live where in a city, you know, that's that can be pretty ugly itself. Yeah. And that's, you know, sort of where got to the point where then I don't have an answer. <laughs> you know, so where do you fit internationally? And in some ways, I think early economists sort of felt, yes, this will probably hurt, not help the, you know, sort of least well off in our country, but it'll certainly help the other people an enormous amount. And it has. I mean, you know, so sort of, the gains to society, you know, of world society have been enormous over the last 20, 30 years. You know, I, I guess the question is, actually, I don't really have an answer to that, but uh, no, I, th- I think we're, uh, we're, you know, I guess we're running short on time here, but uh, I think, you know, th- you know, thanks for the overview and kind of the discursions and the other things. I, I suppose in general, do you think, you know, someone, uh, I mean, you, it sounds like you're, yourself, you know, you've moved to different directions, but I still find a lot of like really interesting uh you know, I, I think this is still worth you know stumbling upon and, and reading. Uh, do do you think someone is misguided to think that there's still a lot of potential and application? No, I think I think number one, there's a lot of theoretical potential in sort of specifying that because what it does is operate in between micro and macroeconomics. Yeah, and that's where the developments have to take place. So I think there's enormous potential gains there, and in sort of framing the policy discussion. I think there's enormous possibilities for that. So on both of those, I think there's enormous possibilities. And I ma- made a decision that I go to a liberal arts school and teach. Um, you know, So I didn't get the graduate students that I would have wanted and hoped for to discuss that, because I would have been suggesting a whole variety of sort of movements along those lines and suggesting that. So yes, I think anybody's interested, you know, sort of, should read about it and think about it because it's a different way of sort of thinking about the aggregate economy. That's a way that's consistent with what I think good theoretical economists understand and good practical economists also understand the limitations of what you can do. Okay. I think my only regret is that it isn't uh, easier to run across copies in print. I was lucky enough to stumble upon here and there, but... You know, I guess fingers crossed that, you know, maybe they go back and print someday. Good. Yep. Thanks for spending the time here today. It's uh, really been a pleasure to talk. Good. Nice talking to you. We have been talking to Professor David Colander all about market anti-inflation plans and much, much, much more. You can find this program and all previous episodes of the Henry George program at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Kate Shashiro, Stanford. Stanford.